Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Dr. Lennon Wadnow will join us to discuss the Drunkard's Walk. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. like to think of our lives as being controlled by our own volition, but the role that randomness and chance occurrence plays in determining our fate may be even more prevalent. Well, what is the nature of chance in our lives? Join us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Leonard Lawnow. Dr. Lawnow's career has included roles as a physicist, television writer, computer software designer, and noted author. Currently on the faculty at Caltech, he has penned the new best-selling book, The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives, which explores the role of chance in our lives. Dr. Lawnow, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, you remember me with Feynman's Rainbow. Yes, indeed. We're, we're very glad to have you back, and I'm glad we didn't scare you off with the last interview. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it as being fun. Okay. <laughs> uh, no guarantees for this one, though. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. You're going to grill me. <laughs> or uh, just by chance. Or it'll be a random walk through the interview here. <laughs> uh, well, this is certainly a very fascinating book, which is, uh, again, uh, The Drunkard's Walk. The title, which is actually a very famous example in probability statistics. Right. The drunkard's walk is a mathematical term for essentially a process of random meanderings, and sometimes given a less colorful name, a random walk. But the book would have sounded less appealing had I called it random walk. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I chose the drunkard's walk as the title of the book because my feeling is that we're all even though we have, might have a direction in life and we certainly have our own abilities and capabilities and hard work behind us moving us in that direction, we're also subject to impacts by unpredictable or uncontrollable events. And it's both our intentions and the results of those events, those random events and how we, re- we react to them that determines our path and quite often makes it a rather jagged one. So I thought that would be a good metaphor for the book. Sort of the message of the book is that oftentimes these random events may have a more of an impact than the events that we feel are determined by ourselves. Yeah, and I think that if your listeners think back on their lives, they may be able to identify that in their lives. It's certainly been true in my life. Even not only that small thing sometimes had a big effect, which is called the butterfly effect in chaos theory, but also that things that seem negative sometimes had a positive effect. And I didn't want to bore my readers with my own life, so I talked mainly about other people, Bruce Willis, Bill Gates, and other people in, in the public eye, where if you study their career in detail, you'll see that seemingly um, unrelated events have caused huge differences in their success or their failure. So I think that's a very important lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. You do have a lot of interesting stories. I'm wondering if you maybe talk about the career of Bruce Willis. Well, Bruce Willis, as an archetype, you know, is a very interesting one. I wouldn't have mentioned any of these people if I didn't think they stand for a whole class of people. But actors in general are an interesting group to look at because they become very publicly successful, extremely successful, and, and those are the people that you see, and yet there's a lot of them trying. And I, having worked in Hollywood, you always wonder what's the difference between them. And Bruce Willis, for instance, was a 
not an unnoticed actor. He was a sometimes working actor in New York and doing off-Broadway and living on, I think it was a fifth-floor walk-up and supporting himself as a bartender for many years. And he was seen by many people, people in power in Hollywood, and no one was really rushing to his door with a big contract. So well, I think what that indicates is how not obvious an actor's qualities are. And what happened with him was that he went in 1984 either to see the Olympics or to visit a girlfriend, depending on which, uh, whose account you believe. But in any case, for a reason unrelated to acting, he went to Los Angeles and an agent suggested he try out for this new TV show. While he was here, he did try out for the show. And the show already had someone in mind, um, but they looked at him, and of the three people who were in charge, only one of them liked him. And the other two thought he wasn't star material. But the one who did like him convinced the others, and he got the job, and then the show came on the air. And then the, then the audience didn't particularly like the show. I, the show did not do that well until the second year, and then it became a big hit. It was called Moonlighting, and the rest is history. And he did the Die Hard series after that, and he became very rich and famous. But had he not gone to Los Angeles to visit his girlfriend, he could still be tending bar. And this is the kind of story that, if you think about it carefully, just brings up so many issues. Because one thing is that the fact that his success, though it's obvious now, and people say he obviously has star appeal, that was far really from obvious when you didn't know he was a star. So it shows that people judge a person's qualities based on their results, which is, I think, a mistake. Also, it shows how a very small, unrelated decision to come to L.A. had a major change on his life. And to me, it illustrates that there are probably many other actors out there who could have had that kind of break or that kind of um, events could have happened to them, but didn't. And they're still out there struggling. And if you see a struggling actor in a bar, you might think they're not successful and, and they're not as talented as Bruce Willis. But I, I also think that's a mistake that they, they might be. And it just didn't work out for them. And and this is true not just in acting, but in, in all fields. Uh, circumstances are extremely important. So in a sense, it's sort of a selection effect that you just notice the ones that happen to be successful. You do notice, and you tend to attribute to them certain qualities that you might not otherwise attribute to those people. Psychologists have done many studies of the illusion of expectations where they show that people perceive a person or an object differently based on the expectations. And some of the more fun studies have with wine, for instance, you can give, or psychologists did give wine experts a series of red and white wines to judge, and they were supposed to write down their qualities. And secretly, they had some white wines mixed in with the reds and dyed them to look like red wines, and they were assigned the qualities of red wines. And this has been done in many guises. They've given them white wines dyed to look like a rosé, and they were judged to be sweeter than identical white wine that wasn't dyed. One interesting study at Caltech gave, not experts in this case, but students, so maybe they were experts on Boone's Farm or Two Buck Chuck, but they gave them a series of wines and they told them the prices of the wine, and they had them judge the wines. Unbeknownst to them, there was a $90 bottle that was marked correctly as $90 bottle and appeared a second time in the lineup marked as a $10 bottle. And they uh, liked the, the $90 wine marked as $90 bottle a lot more than they liked a $10 bottle. And you might think, well, that's obvious or that could be because we're afraid to really like a $10 bottle. But the catch here is that when they were tasting the wines, they were sitting in an MRI machine, and the scientists were actually looking at their brains, imaging while they were tasting the wines, and the pleasure center of their brain really did light up more when they tasted the identical wine marked as a $90 bottle than it was marked as a $10 bottle. So in wines and people in all aspects of life, expectations have a huge importance, which is one of the reasons it's hard for us to judge when something has happened by chance, because when we see something as successful, we tend to attribute the qualities to it that would lead to success.
Uh, I'm curious then, so how do we circumvent this subjective nature of our own minds? Well, you have to be careful. You have to consciously think about what you're doing and try to avoid these mistakes of intuition that we all have. And these are mistakes that we all make. One of the people I talk about in the book is a psychologist named Daniel Kahneman, who with a colleague, Amos Tversky, studied how we make these mistakes of intuition and the effect it has in our economic life and our decision-making. And for that, uh, Tversky had already died, but Kahneman shared the uh, 2002 Nobel Prize in Economics. So that shows how important it is to recognize that we make these mistakes and to counteract them. So that's what you have to understand, randomness, and you have to understand your intuitions, and that's what Drunkard's Walk tries to illuminate for people. Mm-hmm. Perhaps this is no more evident than in the world of finance and stock picking. Yeah, where it's, uh, I mean, one example I talk about is a fellow named Bill Miller who, who runs a mutual fund called Leg Mason, and that fund beat the Standard & Poor's Index for 15 years in a row. And around the 10th or 11th year, he started getting a lot of press for that. And obviously, it was richly rewarded, as was his fund. And in the press, they did something which I think is reasonable. They compared the chances of his streak to achieving such a streak if you were working purely at random or by chance alone. And in science, we do that all the time. If we're looking for a certain effect to happen, we do an experiment, and we look at the results. And and we don't just say, oh, the results tend to behave according to the effect that we predicted. But we, we say, what are the chances we would have achieved those same results by chance alone if the effect weren't at work? So I think that's a good way to approach it. But the, the numbers that they quoted, the odds, of, say, 150,000, 300,000 to one, one place called it 4 billion to one, were totally misguided because they didn't understand how you ask these questions. And then when you're talking about randomness, you have to be very careful about the subtleties and the details. In this case, if you pick a particular person like Bill Miller and say, what are the chances of Bill Miller, that particular individual, starting in particular in 1991 and working for exactly 15 years, in other words, he had a 50% chance each year that he would have success every year from 1991 to 2006. The chances are not as bad as they said, but they're very small, about 1 in 32,000. But that's really not what you have to look at. You have to look at the phenomena, the the phenomena that somebody beats the the standard and poor. From the point of view of randomness, you would say, what are the chances somebody did? And then you would say, Bill Miller happened to be that lucky guy. So you have to look at the question a little differently. And you also have to say the fact that he started in 1991 is not important. He could have started in 1990. We have to factor that in, the chances that he would beat it in some stretch of 15 years. So what I did is a simple calculation to see what are the chances that somebody at some time in the last 40 years, because one of these articles mentioned 40 years as the period of modern mutual funds. So I took a 40-year period, which isn't that big because... It only can't even fit three of those streaks in that period. So I said, what are the chances that somebody of, now there are thousands of mutual fund managers trying to do this, but I took a small number of just 1,000. So I said, suppose you have only 1,000 mutual fund managers trying every year over the last 40 years. What are the chances that someone would have achieved a 15 or or greater year streak? And they suddenly, you're not getting one in 32,000 anymore, certainly not one in 300,000. The chances are actually three out of four. So that means that if no one had achieved a streak like Bill Miller, then you'd say, these guys, are, you could have done better having a monkey flip a coin. So what are we paying them for? What I would say is that Bill Miller did not achieve an ex- a streak that demonstrates extraordinary genius, but was more likely the beneficiary of something that we expect to happen anyway. This, this is something, this very important point, when you judge people's results in the world, we judge people's qualities by their results. And quite often, what happens is the results do not reflect the underlying abilities. It's a much more subtle question than we think.
So how do we separate then the ability from the chance? Well, one of the illusions that people have is called the law of small numbers. It's not really a law. The law is the law of large numbers. But the law of small numbers is the mistaken application of the law of large numbers to small numbers. And the law of large numbers says that in a large number of trials, the results tend to reflect the underlying probabilities. If you have a coin that's 50% heads and you flip it a million or a zillion times, you'll probably get about half heads. But in real life, we only observe people for 5, 10, 15, or 3 periods of time. And in that case, it doesn't reflect. So the way to judge someone is not to look at the results and take the easy way by judging them by the results. It's, it's to look at the person, look at what they're doing, what do they know, is it reasonable that they're going to have this accomplishment, and look in great detail at, you know, if you're hiring someone, don't just say that their last two products were successes. Two is not a good sample. So if you believe that, that they have the brains and the, and the ability and you can find other reasons to support that, then hire them. But don't just look at their results. But at the same time, you could have all the ability, but chance may wind up not favoring you and you might wind up with no results. Well, and both can happen. So now, I'm not saying ability doesn't matter. Ability and hard work do matter. They, they give you, say, your average, but the amount of fluctuation around that is much bigger than people think. One example I give is if you look at companies or CEOs that have a 60% chance in a given year of having success, if you look for five years, 60% translates to three out of five years. But what are the chances if, if someone has a 60% chance in a given year of having success, what are the chances of actually achieving three out of five good years? They're only about one in three. That means that two-thirds of the time, you're in, over a five-year period, your results will not reflect your ability. So if you look at the Fortune 500, if you look at five-year periods, if every company in the Fortune 500 had a 60% chance of success every year, you'd still only find about 133 of them having three out of five good years. The rest would have either greater or lesser success. And actually, about 50 of those companies would have had a streak of five good or bad years in a row, even though they're identical to all the rest who have a 60% chance of success. So it's a lot more complicated. You, you cannot judge by small sample of results. You have to use your head. <laughs> So maybe to use a gambling metaphor, uh, you should look at the uh, companies that are making positive expectation bets, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and be careful because it's something psychologists call the illusion of control, which is the, the, a very ingrained feeling that we all have that we can control things. And it's a very important feeling. There have been studies that show that people who lose this feeling don't live as long and that you get depressed if you lose that feeling. So it, it's very important to have this illusion that you can control things. But when you're making decisions about people in life, it's also important to overcome it. I mean, one study, Yale students had Yale students predicting the outcomes of 30 coin tosses. And unbeknownst to them, their, their successes and failures, they were watching this happen, but they couldn't see how the coin actually came out. They were just told how it came out. And unbeknownst to them, the experimenter had to say, told them each the same, that they were getting the same succession of right and wrong guesses over the 30 so they could have a controlled study. So each of them went in there and had the same experience of right and wrong guesses, and each of them were told that they were right 15 times and wrong 15 times. Now, the psychologists wanted to know, did they feel they could control or, or predict the future of these coin flips? And they knew that they were Yale students, so they couldn't just ask them, can you predict these random coin flips? They had to get it a slightly more subtle way. But they weren't a lot more subtle because all they did was they asked them, would you be, they gave them a battery of questions afterwards. And of course, the students didn't know what the point was of the questions. And, but a couple of the questions were these. Do you think that you would do worse at the guessing if you were distracted? And do you think you could improve by practice? And a significant number of them answered yes to both questions. So that indicates that their feel, even though they might say that, of course, I can't guess how a random event will come out, somehow ingrained in them is the feeling that they actually can. And there have been a lot of studies in a lot of realms 
of life that show that, that even when someone knows that something's random, if you ask them slightly more subtle questions, you can elucidate their feelings that they can control the events. Do you think this is maybe some sort of evolutionary advantage to having this feeling? Yes, I think psychologists feel that these intuitions, what they call heuristics, have developed over time when we were in the wild because we needed to make quick decisions. If you if you see something, you know, and you're not sure it's a blur, you're not sure if it's a, a lion or a lamb, <laughs> you're better off to guess that it's a lion and run because the cost of it is not that great. What is the source of chance and variance in the natural world? Uh, in I mean, in the natural, in the physical world, right. of course, the biggest source of, of chance is quantum theory, which doesn't have a large practical effect on, on most people. But in the physical world, everything that happens has an underlying element of chance behind it. In the everyday world, by chance or randomness, I mean unpredictable or uncontrollable events. So when you flip a coin, for instance, if you have a mach- there are machines that can flip coins and, and will get heads every time. So if you, have, if you can control the initial conditions and the way the coin flips in a laboratory setting, you can eliminate the element of chance. Yet if you, Charles, flip a coin, then you're going to get a random distribution of heads and tails, roughly 50-50, because you don't have that ability. So when I say randomness, and in the drunkard's walk, when I talk about random events in our lives, I don't necessarily mean that on the level of quantum theory they're random, but what I mean is that for all practical purposes they're random because we don't have the ability to isolate the situation and exert enough control to make them deterministic. You know, in your plans for your life, for your company or whatever in sports, we just don't have that kind of control over the situation. If, if we did, and, and two teams played each other in sports, so let's say the Lakers and the Celtics, I'm a big Cubs fan, I'm from Chicago, but in basketball, I'm, I'm for the Lakers. I live in Los Angeles, and the Lakers were truly better than the Celtics, and every time that they played, they would win, and yet they don't. And so that is something that could be modeled as a random event, because why don't they? Somebody, for some unknown reason, has a bad day, the referees have a bad day, who knows what goes on? And, of course, in basketball, it depends on home in a way. But even at home, it's not guaranteed that the Lakers are going to beat the Celtics. So good good thing for natural variants, then. Well, life would be boring if it wasn't for that, right? But, I mean, maybe we would like investments that are boring. <laughs> you know, I, I buy index funds because I, I don't want to pay for someone's illusory control over the stock market or predict, you know, knowledge of the stock market. And they charge a lot for that. Now, if I knew someone who could really predict the stock market or control it, then I would, I would pay for that. <laughs> but sports wouldn't be fun, and neither would love. So. <laughs> well, I guess we're running slightly out of time, but I'm curious, you know, you've had a very varied career. I think. Uh, is this by choice or by chance? <laughs> <laughs> it's both. Uh, you know, one of the lessons of the book is if you want to succeed, double your failure rate. <laughs> it's be opportunistic and get as many at-bats as possible, get as many opportunities, because even if you're doing great, you're going to fail sometimes, and even if you fail depending on, the, on what you're trying, you might fail many times, even though you have, you're destined for success if you keep trying. So I've always planned less and more followed my passions and my opportunities, and so I think that's what's led me to, to do things. Um, I wrote for Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation. I've taught physics. I've done, made computer games, and I've just done what I felt like doing at the time if the opportunity came along, and I never took uh, the idea that I might fail as a problem. <laughs> Probably good advice, then. Well, I knew it, it worked for me, but you do end up paying your dues over and over if you want to do that, go that way. <laughs>
Uh, well, it has led you to uh, the new book, which, of course, is The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives. Dr. Lana, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on The Grox Night Show. Well, thank you. It's been uh, fun, as it was last time. And I look forward. I'm going to have a book, another book out with Stephen Hawking in a couple years, and maybe we'll be back. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. We'll look forward to that then. All right. Take care. And you were just listening to Dr. Leonard Blob now discussing the science of randomness. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. There's a voice that keeps on calling me Down the road, that's where I'll always be Every stop I make, I make a new friend Can't stay for long, just turn around and I'm gone again Until tomorrow, I'll just keep moving on Down this road that never seems to end When you adventure lies just around the bend So if you want to join me for a while Just grab your hat, come travel light, that's old style Maybe tomorrow, I want to settle down Until tomorrow, the whole world is my home so if you want to join me for a while Just grab your hat and come travel like that's old style Maybe tomorrow I want to settle down Until tomorrow I'll just keep moving on So if you want to join me for a while Just grab your hat and come travel like that's old style Maybe tomorrow I'll find what I call Till tomorrow, you know I'm free to roll. All right, we're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. Uh, today's topic from the Grokatron 5000, our computer formerly known as Deep Blue, is zero variance or a random walk. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if uh, you think they have zero variance or they're just a random walk, and maybe a little reason why. Dr. Mladen, are you ready to play the game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Uh, person number one, zero variance or the random walk, Britney Spears. <laughs> well, professionally, it's a random walk, but it seems in her personal life to be zero variance. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, number two is the uh, Microsoft CEO, Steve Ballmer. Uh, gee, I wish I could go in between there, and I don't know enough about his career, so I give the Bill Gates the, the random walk, so I'll give him that too. Okay. <laughs> I think they may have lucked into a lot of stuff there. Oh, yeah. Well, I did talk about Bill Gates' specific career path, and there were a lot of small events that gave him great opportunities that changed his life for sure. Uh, well, number three is the physicist Stephen Hawking. Oh, uh, zero variance on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's had the worst parts of the random walk and managed to still do great, don't you think? I mean, I, I'd say imagine if, if, he, if he didn't have that disease, but zero variance on the genius there. Indeed. How is it working with him on the, on the new book? It's going very well. It's, it's, it's more like working with a rock star. It's amazing <laughs> to um, walk with him and then be you know, elbowed all the way by a horde of photographers. Uh, okay, number four is the director, Steven Spielberg. Oh, I would say random walk. Hmm. I've worked with him, too. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a very smart guy, so I guess when I say random walk, I don't mean without drift. <laughs> okay. uh, you could have a direction, but uh, I'm just talking about I have to choose between the uh, n no random factors or random factors. So. Okay. <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, George Bush. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, v a very uh, random walk. <laughs> yeah. 
Actually, I think I heard he had executed a drunkard's walk literally in the past, but I guess we won't go there. <laughs> yes, but uh, was not prosecuted for it, I understand. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, Dr. Mladen, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game and, of course, talking about your book, which is The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives. Well, thank you again. It was certainly our pleasure. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's episode of the Grok Science Show. Uh, we'll be back next week with more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at the Grok Science Show, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs> <laughs>